0: for joining us on Glycocast, the podcast dedicated to illuminating the often overlooked world of rare diseases where stories of resilience, hope, and community take center stage. I'm Kara Marisi, a rare disease mom and a devoted advocate for patients like my own son. Today we have the privilege of introducing you to a remarkable couple from the land down under, Amy and Michael Dan. Hailing from Australia, they are parents to Lewis, a bright and brave soul living with ALG1 CDG. Amy, a critical care nurse and an educator shaping the next generation of nursing professionals, joins us. Us, alongside Michael, a strong local disability and patient advocate. Their journey took an unexpected turn with Lewis's diagnosis, propelling them into action. Amy and Michael hit the ground running, channeling their energy into meaningful initiatives. From organizing fundraising events to tirelessly raising funds for CDG care and CDG research, they have become champions for a cause close to their hearts. Thank you for joining us today, Amy and Michael. Thanks for having us.
1: We'll also be talking to Dr. Miao He, co-director of Metabolic and Advanced Diagnostics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She will explain to us how the study of biomarkers is changing the diagnostic landscape of congenital disorders of glycosylation.
0: So let's quickly just get started. If you don't mind telling us, Amy and Michael, a little bit about your family and what led you to finding Lewis's diagnosis?
2: Yeah, sure. Do you want to?
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, we obviously, like you said, live in Australia um, and we have Louis who's five and Isaiah who is two and a half. So um, And he's unaffected by CDG. Um, so, yeah, we had Louis five and a half years ago. And um, when he was about three months old, that was our first sign of anything. So up until the first three and a half months of his life, he actually was uh, developing, normally reaching all his milestones. There was no real flags. Um, I guess in hindsight, there probably were a couple of little flags for us, but um, nothing jumped out. He obviously re- met all the checks that they do as a newborn and all that. Um, so, yeah, at about three and a half months of age, Michael was just about to pop him in the bath and, he um, stopped breathing. He was crying. Yeah, Yeah, he was crying. It was quite cold. We lived in a pretty cold part of um, Australia and it was winter and he was, yeah, he cried and stopped breathing. And at the time when we went by ambulance to the hospital, they just said, oh, it's probably like one of those breath-holding spells that kids do when they're, you know, a bit distressed and things like that. Um, And these breath-holding spells kind of kept happening and it was actually just one random young nurse um, watched him and she said, I think these are seizures. I don't think this is a breath-holding spell. Um, and that just kind of started like a whole cascade of events and the seizures got worse and became significantly more life-threatening and we were flown to the to Sydney for, from um, where we were. And um, he was in ICU and um, ventilated and sedated for a good chunk of time then because every time he came off the event he would have these um apneic seizures and we were in the end in ICU in Sydney Children's for um 10 weeks before we got a diagnosis and for a good chunk of that time it was very touch and go with what was what was going on with Louis and also very up in the air they really didn't know what was causing all of this um sort of drastic and dramatic seizures and the dramatic onset of the seizures.
1: Yeah. And the diagnosis, uh, the way they reached this diagnosis, could you tell us a little bit about this?
3: Yeah. So lucky enough to be part of a um like a rapid trial. It was like, like, yeah, it was yeah. like a clinical
2: trial that was yeah. for kids that were in an ICU without a diagnosis with sort of an unexplained condition.
3: Um, and, so, and we had to have been in ICU for eight plus weeks and they tried to get some tests off leading up to that. But there were a couple of issues like they took bloods on the, a Monday and they didn't send them off until Tuesday. So it like clotted and stuff like that. So it had to reset. So like a couple of little things went our way so we were able to get into this rapid trial. But It was um, a,
2: a rapid genome sequencing yeah. trial. Up until that point, they had lots of maybes. It could be this, maybe it could be that. The big thing was some of his um, biomarkers that led them to thinking um, it could be a CDG. I remember they very early on, like in the first week, they called in a geneticist and she said he has, um, I'm going to get this wrong now, the trans, was it transferrin, something, transferrin, Yeah, yeah the And she said yeah. that can be related to this really rare condition, but we don't think it is, but we're going down that path anyway. And if it is, it's probably mm. really mild and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and a
3: couple of other things like that. Like, oh, he's got um, inverted nipples and blah, 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 what, what's that look yeah. like? And then elbow. Like, he's a baby. like, like he's <laughs> a very really yeah.
2: chubby baby. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they eventually took lots of testing. And I think it was a matter of, like, access to these kinds of tests to get deeper, to find out the diagnosis. But like Michael said, it was only because we got in this rapid genome testing that they um, tested the three of us and were able to tell us that Michael and I were carriers and Louis now had um, ALG1 because of it. Yeah.
0: So his seizures, was it always where he would hold his breath? And how long were these stints where he was holding his breath?
3: It started up early, like the first couple would have been like 20 seconds and we were just like, like, the, I remember the first couple just being like, like what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, they sort of progressed. And I guess over time his seizures have sort of, like, I don't know, changed and, um, yeah, he, he gets very stiff um, to his arms and legs. Um, and then, yeah, he does have the apneic seizure. Um, we're on a good, pretty good run at the moment where he hasn't had That's any. Really so, good. yeah, fingers crossed. that can
0: like be. I would. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah.
2: But yeah, they they definitely like started out just as a straight up breath mm-hmm. with nothing else and then evolved to have other little quirks and movements and things that come with seizures. Mm-hmm. And then I remember them telling us when he was in the ICU, his seizures will probably change as he gets older. And they certainly have like he, I feel like every year there's like one ra- random different seizure that we haven't seen before. And then it kind of morphs and that becomes his normal. So it's um, a constantly evolving thing mm-hmm. with his seizures.
0: And what other symptoms have you noticed besides the seizures that are from CDG? Like, what are more, what are his most prominent symptoms right now?
3: Uh, probably the low yeah, he's got, yeah, yeah pretty severe hypotonia. Um, and
2: that's probably one of the, the lack like, in um, hindsight because he wasn't great at holding his head up and he hadn't rolled or anything yet. Um, so that's the one thing that we're like, we probably, potentially could have noticed he had lower tone prior to all the seizures. There's a lot of things that we um, do often wonder, and the doctors have said to us that a lot of Louis, the severity of Louis's symptoms or severity of his um, condition is potentially likely to have been impacted by the hypoxic episodes or constant hypoxic episodes in that 10 week stretch. So a lot of the um Global developmental delay and the, um, I guess, severeness of the hypertonia is likely more because of the um, epileptic, epileptic encephalopathy and the hypoxic nature of his seizures. Because there was a lot of time without oxygen every sort of, you know, a few times a day. Um, so yeah, but his tone is probably the biggest and that then leads to lack, as you know, so many other complications, all because tone is like just a whole body thing.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And I love how they say you should have noticed this, but they're a newborn. So they're floppy anyway. So you just yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, so you're a critical care nurse. I have to ask, do you feel like when this was all happening, you, like knew what to do you're like oh I've been through this like I I'm a nurse by profession you know or was you're going through this journey and you're like me where you're like oh my god I have no idea what to do (laughs) do you feel like it has helped like significantly um I probably nowadays
2: it definitely has at the time I thought it was a good thing but then at the same time it wasn't because we were sitting in ICU and like we'd hear them talking or you know, I'd see numbers changing or things happening and I knew what that meant and I knew, like, my mind was going to the next what could happen from here or what are the possible outcomes it, of It became scenario. more stressful. Yeah. Yeah, and so I felt like I didn't have that kind of blissful um, naivety to it, whereas yeah. um, Michael it not from the medical field and had no prior experience with it to know what all of this meant. Um, but I think it certainly helps nowadays um, to have a medical understanding and a bit of a background discussing things with the doctors and, and um, his other healthcare team. It just is like, feels easier because I already kind of speak the language, I guess. Like,
0: yeah. So how has, you mentioned that you have another son who's two and a half, um, Isaiah is, does he, is he understanding what's going on do you think it's changing his childhood then and, and his the whole family dynamic
3: I think he's really good with Louis. like he um he's really good like if people like um, come to our place where we meet purple and they're like oh hey Amy hey Michael hey Isaiah it's just like what about Louis? like yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah like peer pressuring people to say hello and goodbye to Louis and stuff like that which is really nice um but yeah we've sort of had chats over the like over the last couple of years just about like when kids don't know any different, it's amazing what they can do. Um and like obviously that's us looking at it from a perspective of um like Louis does have a disability and and but Isaiah just sees Louis as Louis. So right. it's really nice just to see um just see the world through innocent eyes, um, that Isaiah has.
2: Yeah, I don't think Louis's um any different to him, but maybe when he gets a little bit older, he might start to notice that Louis's not necessarily doing things that are age appropriate for him so um, yeah I think at the moment he he just thinks that this is just Louis and it's all very normal for him but I think it definitely is going to change his childhood in that it's not going to be the same as somebody that has a typically developed sibling he's I feel like he's already going to grow up with like a sense of um, understanding and acceptance and inclusion that he potentially wouldn't have um, if he wasn't exposed to it so
0: yeah, you wish like the whole world had that empathy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, so questions, because I'm not familiar with the Australian healthcare system. So how do you feel like the Australian healthcare system is catered to the needs of families? And do you feel like they have given you tons of resources? How does it work with like insurance and stuff over there? Is it as bad as the United States? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
2: We're actually really lucky in Australia. We have a really great healthcare system um, and the way that it works. So everyone gets free healthcare, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called Medicare and it just means that everyone has access to it and everyone can access a public hospital. Um, You can then get private health insurance and pay more and have access to... Um, private hospitals where you might have a room on your own your own you choose your own doctor that sort of thing Um, and things might happen quicker Um,
3: choice of specialists yeah
2: um, the public system here in Australia is definitely under strain at the moment because of um, the strain on the healthcare system post-COVID and things like that so there's obvious like gaps and things like that but overall we have kind of I guess unlimited access to things in a way Um, For us, we live regionally, so we're a couple of hours away from the nearest, like, um, from Melbourne, from the nearest city. And so we have, I suppose, limitations in terms of access to certain specialists. So all the Louis specialists are in Melbourne. Um, But if anything that's come out of COVID, telehealth has been really really good. So now everyone's more than happy to do telehealth. So we do lots of just the check-ins over Zoom and things like that. Um, And then in terms of support for disability we have a national disability insurance scheme or the NDIS, and basically, people um, with the support of like medical professionals or allied health, so physios and OTs and things like that, they apply to the NDIS. And if you are approved, you get um, then more discussions happen, and you basically get a um, handful of funding an amount of funding that covers you for anything that's related to your disability. So, um, for us, that's um all of louis like feeding equipment and and formula and all his feeding stuff basically um his all his equipment is funded by NDIS so we just have to apply for that and get it it's not a, you don't, certainly don't just get it it is quite challenging you really do have to fight to get things that would just be um Okay cuz I was about ready to move to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> no we you certainly still it's the equipment that you have to fight for and it's because it's so expensive. But, yeah. Um, other things like because is now five but he's still in nappies we get nappies covered by the NDIS and um Kara, like lack support where he has a support worker that's all covered by the NDIS so we're pretty lucky that it is really well funded and we're relatively well supported they do support kids really well in the NDIS um potentially better than what I've heard they do adults but um yeah. It's probably
3: also from a perspective of where going through the administration process, right? Like for the we yeah. yeah.
2: And that there's that thought process that early intervention can, you know, minimise or um change the um potential impacts longer term. So they put a lot more into kids to try to um help them, I guess, with anything that's gonna happen long term. But yeah, uh, we are pretty be pretty good i think the only negative the only disadvantage we have is that we live regionally but that was a decision we made when Louis' diagnosis happened so yeah
1: and particularly with that you had just said uh of the time of diagnosis so we can understand that when there's no diagnosis is it's, it's a, a particular period of concern because you don't know what's happening right but then a diagnosis comes. So at that time, what were your feelings when you finally received that diagnosis? And if you can share, if you had a discussion, decisions that you think were important at that moment.
3: Yeah. I think that like the time of diagnosis is like, it was pretty tough. Like we were given the diagnosis and um, just because Louis was going through such an like period of adversity uh, with seizures and like we just really didn't know what was going to happen we basically got the diagnosis and it was like right like there's nothing really that more that we can do um, so here's a structure of things that we're going to set you up with and you're going to go home so for us at the time that was um, going from Sydney back to Canberra where we lived um, and then yeah we spent a bit of time in hospital before we were able to take Louie home again but yeah, it was sort of tough, like, not knowing what the future was told. At Like, this was September that we were given the diagnosis mm-hmm. and they basically said you can, like, not expect to have Louis at Christmas. So, um, yeah, that was really tough and, yeah, we were new parents and, like, just it was a whole lot of unknown, really. Yeah, I think
2: the diagnosis, when I think about it, it takes us back to, like, a really emotional um time because it and a very very grief-ridden time because when they gave us the diagnosis, they did just say, like, okay, now we've got a label. We know that he's going to have this um, these seizures and these apneic seizures. And there's nothing we can do about it. So here's all the tools, like Michael said, he's everything to take you home, but this is now your life, but you won't have him for very long. And they had found at the time there was one journal journal article about ALG1. And, like, the statistics in it weren't great because it was a very small, um, I think it was maybe 40 patients. So they said, you know, statistically he's not going to make it past um, the age of one, and if he does, he probably won't make it past the age of two. But they sent us home with um, PAL care and not pal- palliative care that we know for kids where it's more about, you know, improving quality of life and it's different to adult palliative care. This was like palliative care because, this little boy's going home to have his last day. So we made lots of decisions in that sort of few months thinking we're going to lose Louie any day now because of these seizures. Um,
3: and there's, yeah. there were days that we thought like, yeah, this was it. That so, was the yeah.
2: yeah. And particularly like with the, where we were, we were five and a half hours from all our family um, and closest friends Um, Michael and I have been together for a long time and grew up in the same town so all our family was back here in our hometown so that was sort of what prompted our decision to be like well if we have really limited time with Louis let's move back so he has as much time with his family we have the support that we need um, and that sort of thing but um, obviously it's been different than that and we haven't had that outcome which has been great but that's when I think of the diagnosis that's Mm. what I it takes me back to um, not necessarily like, a, yeah, we have a diagnosis. It was a very um, trying time. Yeah,
1: And in front of those, those dear expectations, they, they told you what happened. So you, you talk about this grieving feeling. Well, how much time did it take for you to accept the situation and start seeing it with more light and hope?
3: Yeah, we'll let you know when we have accepted it. <laughs> Ah, uh, okay. yeah. I <laughs> think like it was just a lot of chaos in that time. Yeah, um,
2: twenty nineteen fast. That was the year we moved back, December twenty eighteen.
3: Don't move into say um, within three days of Christmas. Don't do it. It's a bad idea.
2: We yeah. So twenty nineteen was um yeah. That was probably a really hard year because because they'd given us and like we're not angry that they gave the prognosis that they did. But because they gave us that prognosis, we kind of led our life in this um, way that we didn't want to plan too far ahead. Like I remember it was like two weeks out from Louis's first birthday and we still hadn't decided if we were going to do anything because we were too scared if we booked something and then we lost him, we'd have to deal with the fact that we'd done that. So we were living this very like day-to-day, day-to-day yeah. life that was really like yeah one day at a time is great kind of thing but it was also really hard emotionally to um, live with this unknown that we just weren't really sure where this was going or what was happening and I think it was probably um, not until probably 2020 that I think we both sort of started to come out of the fog of it all and be like and it might have even been his like around his second birthday Mm -hmm. we're all like okay like we've made it to two like and start to um yeah accept this and start looking at it in a different with a different light and um i mean that's not to say the whole time we were like hating on the diagnosis or anything we were accepting of it but we just it was the the life limiting nature that had come with it and that poor prognosis that we were really struggling to work out how do we live with this Um, And I think it wasn't until then. And it also probably we started to put a bit more time into our own mental health and start to work on things to try to be better for Louis and to be able to support him better. Um, And that probably helped to start to see um, the light and the joy around a little bit more. Probably helped that he started to laugh a little bit and smile and things like that. So that they're always nice little moments. That was something they told us we'd never get they just said like if he was smiling and laughing before you won't see that ever again so that was really nice when that started
1: oh that's that's really great to hear and so I think a key factor in giving the best quality of life is building good medical teams that you know can can really give solution to the day-to-day problems and at sometimes emergencies that probably were not expected so how has this experience of having a health team around Louis been for you and has it been something very you know like continuous very easy going or at some times have you had to you know stop and and probably discuss some of the medical decisions and even change who is seeing Louis? how how has this experience been
3: um like it's had to, it's had its ups and downs um in sydney we were really really well supported in the early days um and that's from the um neuro to genetics to the nursing team to the doctors in the icu that was um yeah it was really good it was a little community that we felt like we were part of so um that was really good the doctor when we came back to canberra was really good we had a weekly appointment with i forget her name now but yeah, yeah we had weekly appointments and yeah that was really good that we've had um, interesting experiences. Um, at times where uh, we've been told what we're doing, um, and just sort of had no input. Um, and yeah, that was a bit of a shock to us. Um, because we had had such a just a supportive environment, and asking us what we wanted to do and what our goals were for Louis and stuff like that. So, to go from that to, um, being like right, like, um, instead of right, this is Louis a person, this is Louis and his symptoms. Um, so. And that was just probably a product of the environment of that hospital where they are just on a huge um, sort of numbers basis where they've got, like, um, ridiculous numbers going through that hospital each day. So the kids are just a number to them. But I I think think
2: we've just got to, I think it's been trying to find someone that will work collaboratively with us. Yeah. um, And understands that Louis doesn't follow a typical path. Um, So what might be normal for... Um, the textbooks or for one other child is potentially not necessarily normal for Louis or he has his own kind of normal Um, but yeah like we've had like Michael said we've had some challenging doctors and then we've just like I've just um, taken it upon ourselves to just change doctors and we have a pediatrician based in Shepparton with us in our local town Um, and so they're kind of our like main overseer so he will look after us when aren't unwell here or um, if we have any questions or queries about something going on that we just need to touch base with or he's really good and he's a really great resource because he can we, he's made himself quite accessible for us which has been really handy um, but then he's also great for like us when we need to like hash out something like if we like we've just recently been having some issues with one of the teams and just going through like, well, what are our options? Can we move to a different spot? Can we, do you know someone that you can better recommend? And so out of conversations like that, we we ended up being able to go to a different, another specialist, a developmental medicine doctor who's been amazing. And she's now saying, So I think this person's better suited to Louie's care and this person's better suited. So um just kind of finding the finding the right people that you can have these conversations with so that everyone's on the same team and it's not necessarily like you said, this is what you're doing, this is how we're doing it, and that's it and no conversation. Doesn't really work with kids when they've got lots of medical complexities like that, and we parents don't cope well with that.
3: Yeah, and that's <laughs> a good. That's a do. good example of, we were talking before about the. Um, like, so now we see a, new, a neurologist privately in Australia. So we've taken yeah. advantage of our private health to to get yeah, basically pick the specialists that we want to see and that we had a good vibe with, and yeah, um, yeah, know that they just through word of mouth and I guess um, through the medical profession as well as a couple others. Whereas professors.
2: not everyone has that opportunity. We have. Um, friends now who had a little girl with ALG1 in Melbourne and they um because of where they lived was zoned to another children's hospital um and they were given no choice in doctor and had a lot of challenges with with this uh with the team um and looking after her and things like that and we had said like you could go to our neurologist but he's private and they just weren't in uh or weren't able to organize that for whatever reason um so it does mean in that sense when you our system is that you don't kind of pick who you see and if you can't that doesn't work well as a team then you sort of just have to work through that rather than being okay this isn't working let's try
1: something else. And so I think I would like to highlight two important things for our listeners and, and families that are struggling with this types of situation is one is to always try to find uh, physicians and healthcare personnel that as you said, are collaborative, that want to talk to each other, that really want to understand what's happening, that it's not just another number. So I think that's key. And the other thing is to find a physician that supervises or coordinates what's happening, right? I think those two things are, are really something that's going to build a good uh, health team. And if there are struggles, try to always modify them on this journey. So as you said, you well, you have changed the way that you see now the the disease that affects Lewis and, or well, you're building hope as a family. And in, in that regard, uh, how do you see therapy? Do you say uh, therapy just to maintain the good quality of life day to day? Are you seeking or interested in, uh, development of new therapies that could really make a more important or significant change that until now are expected from the current therapies? How, how do you see yourself as a family in regard to therapies?
2: Yeah. So I think um, we do therapy like in the, um, with physio and OT for Louis, but it's not super often because it's a lot of like play based stuff. So we do a lot of it, I guess, ourselves. We see someone once a fortnight Um, in terms of like um, more advanced therapies and things like that we that's probably one thing we don't have access to as much in Australia if if we were to um, or we found it challenging if we were to want to do something like that we um, have not I guess been able to access it as much there's not a lot of knowns about cdg here in australia there's a few specialists um and there's one in melbourne that we have worked with um when he was a baby but we haven't actually seen her since so um yeah we don't have we just don't have the access to like all the more advanced things that we'd love to and we'd love for cdg to be more of a like um more of a well-known condition in australia so doctors aren't completely sideswiped when they're patient has this diagnosis and then they know what resources and things like that to um, give the families but yeah I think access for us is is a big thing I remember I did try to do something for with Mayo and like I hit a wall because I couldn't um I didn't have a social security number for obvious reasons and um there was something else that I couldn't do and I couldn't get it across because I couldn't get the doctor here to sign off on it and things like that so we found it really hard to um, access anything outside of Australia for therapy purposes yeah
0: there really should be more of a um, a bridge of this gap of communication between different countries because i hear this so often talking to different families from all over the world and it's frustrating because we feel as a cdg community that we're this family but we can't get all of these specialists and teams because there are so many barriers and walls that everyone hits so it's incredibly frustrating um but i do want to is is what's your day-to-day life is he in school to is he home with you during the day
2: yeah so he's home Um, most of the time um he's going to school next year which is another huge thing that we never thought we'd get to so it's really exciting and um brings huge emotions with that um so yeah he um louis so yeah we said that he has hypertonia so he doesn't um can't weight bear or anything like that he's quite um low tone in that sense so we He's in his um, like supported seating or a chair or something like that all the time. But he's predominantly home with us. We've had to, um, you know, make decisions in terms of where we work and how we work to make sure that flexibility is really big. So um, I, uh, like you said, now teach nursing and that was a big part of that was because, of the flexibility that brought with being able to come home if something happens or um, work not necessarily typical nine to five hours and things like that so we have a carer a support worker with him uh, one day a week um, and then we have our amazing parents who look after both our boys now one other day a week as well um, and yeah so he's basically home with us all the time or with someone um, and then yeah next year he'll go to school which we don't really know how that'll look but It'll be some sort of probably be a few days a week for a few hours until he can build up a bit of a tolerance to it. We find he gets quite overstimulated by lots of noise, so I'm not sure how he'll go. Um, but then sometimes I think it's more we're not sure how we'll go with <laughs> him mm. being at school every day, not necessarily. He'll probably love it. very um, likes socialising once he gets there. He currently goes to the school to their like kinder program for a couple of hours a day once a week. And he loves it. He um I always send him saying if he gets really upset or like he's just not loving it, just call me. And as soon as he walks in the door, he's like smiles, he's happy, he's yeah,
0: he just loves it. Mm-hmm. I always feel Dominic gets so in with so much engagement and attention at school that when he's home, I feel like he's like so bored. Yeah. and and yeah. only so much I could do, but he's getting all this attention in school, and I'm like, yeah. well. I guess I could put some television on for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I remember his first day of school, I was nervous, but at the same time, I he was so happy because again, he just loves attention and everyone, you know, they were kind of goggling all over him. And so I, I drove away and I was like, I get a break. This is awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna go grocery shopping. I'm gonna yeah. go here. I'm gonna do this. It was amazing. I've been. I was waiting for that break for a really long time.
2: Yeah, it's gonna be really weird not having both the boys and mm-hmm. then not necessarily being you know at my mom's or something she's only a couple of minutes down the road and often like we'll duck out because something's happened so it would be really weird to like not have mm-hmm. him it's normally Isaiah goes to daycare or mm-hmm. Isaiah's with someone but we still have Louis with us it'll be weird for it to be the other way around and mm-hmm. have Louis at school and Isaiah home and yeah mm-hmm.
1: it's
0: gonna be- it'll be an adjustment it will be yeah yeah. So I mentioned in the introduction about all of the amazing and unique events that you both have put on. Um, I follow you on Instagram. So I see all of all the things that you've been doing, which has been quite incredible. Um, so can you tell us about um some of these events and what led to their success. And I want to highlight one which I think is super cool. And it's the annual CDG wine drive, which sounds <laughs> amazing. So could you tell us a little bit about these events?
3: Yeah, so it started um, yeah it started, started yeah so 2019 was our first um sort of, I guess um, it was actually yeah, trying GDG. to raise yeah. funds for um CDG um, and CDG care. So yeah, we were planning to go on a holiday, and um, a few of us were going to go and run in this festival on the Gold Coast. And um, a friend said, "Oh, like why don't we raise money uh, for CDG? So it basically started there. Um, and yeah, we, we I don't know set the goal at like a thousand dollars because it was just like well, if everyone took yeah. in twenty bucks, it'll be great. Like and and yeah, it'd be fine. And we ended up raising like fourteen, 14 or fifteen 000, grand or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was really just overwhelming to see how well supported we were and it, we basically did no marketing or advertising it was just sort of word of mouth and a few things we were really lucky that a couple of organizations locally um like amy's old man's work got on board did, did your sister sister's, yeah um company they got on board and, and sort of donated a bit which pushed it up but yeah it was just that was really overwhelming and i uh, think
2: because that amount had come from literally just like our family and friends and their connections yeah it wasn't like we that was what was so overwhelming that this was just from people that knew us somehow mm. and so yeah
3: it was really humbling and yeah so we went on a holiday with friends and that Did was yeah and yeah we tried
2: to run and, and yeah um all got shirt matching shirts and stuff mm. like
3: that And yeah, yeah that,
2: so was, that was, was a really good time and we were sort
3: of like oh yeah like let's do this yearly and then obviously 2020 with the pandemic um like sort of that was next. so um, it was coming up to World CDG Awareness Day and we are like, we'll, we'll do a fun run then virtually because we were going through a lockdown yeah. at the time. So, yeah, and, again, that was only through um, sort of word of mouth and just mm-hmm. our friends. There might have been 25 of I us. I think that's actually old.
2: how the wine drive started. Yeah. Because you couldn't do this, like, face-to-face um, run or walk. Mm.
3: and Michael, so yeah, it's a old yeah, man who runs it and he's not the most it. yeah he's no athlete so just <laughs> a flat rock and contribute this way so
2: yeah organize the wine so mm. he got in touch with like a local winery that he um knew well and and organized some um clean skins like they're unbottled and i was just looking at, yeah we've got one down there actually um and he organized these labels and this was one from When is this? Oh, I don't know. This might have been 2020. Oh, this looks like 2021. So we Mm get these labels done. Oh, so cute. And they've got like the wine on them and some photos and stuff and sells them and then all the money, or majority of the money goes to CDG Care. And so then that's become really popular every year. People are like, I'm ready for my wine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love it. Wine for the year. So, yeah, but each year we've still tried to do um, an annual cdg care day event um and so every year we get together we did do um michael and this friend our really good friends mm. that had suggested we fundraise he then you got you can talk to us did uh, yeah so a couple of years time. yeah a
3: couple of years ago we um, had to go at what's called everesting so you're basically um trying to climb the height of mount everest um in one activity so yeah, that was a really good chance for us to try and um, spread awareness and fundraise and stuff like that. So, um,
2: well that out of that though, cause that kind of also coincided with, um, that was a November event. Yeah. It was like mid early November. Um, I think by the time we pushed that and we, um, Michael and Josh did that event and then we, Push the Giving Tuesday um, initiative as well. We mm-hmm. ended up with 000 mm-hmm. twenty five thousand or twenty thousand for that that year in that event. So that was we were super wrapped with that. We have
0: really generous friends. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> a little bit more. That one got a bit further. Like the Everesting, we got some sponsors and things like that mm-hmm. on board for the boys, and um, it was a huge a huge event for us. Um, and They still say they're going to do it again. So watch this space one day. We we
3: didn't complete it and we've got big enough egos that we want to complete it. So, yeah. Yeah, I would
0: be like, I'm not going to climb any mountains, but I will buy the wine. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, So you want to clarify? So a wine drive in Australia is where you just buy wine and like the wine yeah, fundraiser. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Understanding
0: That's driving. my kind of fundraiser. <laughs>
2: yeah. But you bring a good point though, like you said before we have generous friends. We actually do have an incredible support group of friends. We have um sort of a core group that have really banded around us um since the beginning and have not wavered, and they are yeah, they're really, really special people, and and all of this fundraising we wouldn't be able to do without them and our family, um, all of our siblings and our parents, like everyone. We have a kind of a group of probably forty that um include our immediate family and our really close friends who. Every year they are there, rain, hail, or shine. Um, and they are helping to spread awareness. And I don't think we can do half of what we do if we don't have them with us. Yeah. And not just fundraising, even just day-to-day. Right,
0: right. It's so important to have that support system through yeah. this journey. It really is. Yeah. Um, all right, so last question. What advice would you give to families that possibly have a new diagnosis And are just starting this rare disease journey.
3: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I don't know. I think early on, it's it's hard to. Um, I would just say it's it's I can understand that it's hard right now to see the light, but to um sit with it and acknowledge it, but know that you're not alone. I think that was probably one really big thing for us is we just thought we had no one that knew what this life was like that we didn't know anyone with cdg i think when i googled it shannon willardson was the only person i found
0: on same, same yeah she was the first she was the first yeah. person that i reached out to yeah and i
2: just messaged and i was like i don't know anyone yeah. like you <laughs> um it was like a please be my friend <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but then like once you sort of start to scratch that surface of of rare disease there's a whole community out there and just a whole family of people that are that have your back and that will support you through this um but to find those around you as well and just lean on them I think it's really easy to um try to do all of this alone but yeah I guess to know that you're not alone and, and just to lean on the people close to you and the people far that um away that also are uh, really big supports for you but yeah um and that it, it's not uh I know we painted a picture that early on we were really um down in the dumps and like it was really hard and challenging but we always saw the the light that Louis brought and still does and the joy that he brings it is like a whole different kind of um happiness that these kids give us. Like I don't I wish I could bottle it up and give it to people because I just don't think um everyone sees it like we do. There's yeah, there it's really special once you get into this world and you realise what's in here. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I think I read the that.
3: um is it Welcome to Holland. Oh yeah Welcome uh, to Holland. Yes. Yeah read yeah. that and yeah I just think um yeah we just ended up and not out of choice, but just taking things day by day and, and that obviously helped. But Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's an ebb and flow of uh like one hour you're like, I can do this, I got yeah. this. And the next hour you're like, Oh my god, I don't think I could do this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I think it was like, um, Ivan, you said before, like, when did you accept it? And you joked about not doing it. It's like mm-hmm. one week we feel like, yes, we are like on top of this. We are nailing this CDG stuff. Like we've got rare disease down and we're okay with it and we're happy. And then the next week something happens and we just like fall back into that slump of like, why us? Why Louis? like, yeah, we don't like this. What can we do? That's and when you we- open the wine, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it is, it is definitely like
1: an ebb and flow thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I I also have a last question. So if you just can tell us, uh, how is the CDG community uh, in Australia? Is it a, a strong community? Do you know how many families are dealing with CDG diagnosis? That's one thing. And how well connected are you with the research community in Australia? Are there, do you know if there are uh, research groups uh, working with you or interested in, in studying these diseases and, and eventually trying to develop treatments? Do you, could you tell us a little bit about this?
3: Yeah, the, the CDG community is developing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, strictly from a population base, we've got 30 million people here. So like comparatively, it's not huge to the States. Um, yeah, there are... We have noticed recently there have been a couple of new families joining us. Uh, Even just in
2: the ALG1. Yeah. I think in the last six months I've had maybe four messages from parents who have had kids diagnosed. And given Louis was the only ALG1 when he was born, I think that takes it to maybe like six that I know of in Australia. So even in five years, that's a big jump for just ALG1, let alone all the other types.
3: Um,
2: Yeah, sorry.
3: Yeah, so I guess we're growing. but, yeah, obviously it's very limited just from a, a sheer numbers point of view. I
2: think the community as a whole, though, like there's um, we have like an online presence. We're probably not as strong and in touch as we would like. Um, we certainly I feel like we were kind of gathering some momentum and then we had the pandemic and everything stopped and we just haven't picked that back up again, I guess. Um so yeah, we'd certainly love to get like, particularly for us in uh, Victoria, we'd love to get like a Melbourne or a Victoria kind of gathering together and, and see. And I know I was chatting with um, uh, Meryl, I think it was Meryl about, she's only a couple of hours away. So we were talking about getting getting a group together. So we definitely could bring the community together a bit more even just face-to-face rather than just online um and in terms of research I to be honest I don't know if there's any in Australia um I'm really lucky as you know to be on the CDG care board so I'm I feel like I know what's going on in the states but I don't really know much if there is any happening in Australia I don't have any kind of connect there um so we'd love to know if there was and we like yeah be super supportive of of whatever we could be yeah
1: Great. Well, I know there is a glycoscience glycoscience community in Australia, so probably we could make some some contact there to to just you know try to uh, get to know each other and and see what can uh, the research community in Australia do for the CG CDG community. Yeah. So, uh, well, thank you very much. And I don't know if you want to share final thoughts, any anything that you feel you want to say.
2: Um, Just thank you yeah Yeah. thanks for having us and letting us share our story and thanks for sharing so many other stories I know um, yeah like I said when we first got the diagnosis there was sort of nothing like this so I think now to have something like this out there and for people that are in the early days and for those of us that aren't it's really nice like listening to everyone's story and hearing a bit about um, themselves and their kids especially for those of us that um, are across the a mm. few oceans um it's great mm-hmm. to to have this as a as a um a resource so thank you for putting it together and thanks for having us
1: on the contrary thank you very much for being with us and now it's time to continue our interview with dr miao he uh so karen please uh, go ahead and- great dr he what led
0: you to specialize in the research of CDGs and when did you actually first hear about congenital disorders of glycosylation? Was it when you were in medical school? Were you Was it later in your career? I heard about
4: uh, CDGs when I was in uh, medical school and mm-hmm. uh, I did my... Um, uh, clinical training to become a geneticist at uh, Pittsburgh. So that's when I was introduced to CDG. So at that time, um, we are lucky to be uh, a field lab that uh, developed uh, IEF-based CDG screening. So that was uh, how uh, I got into uh, this business. So I think what uh, triggered me to... Uh, specialized in the research for CDG is actually, uh, at that time, we had uh, quite a few cases, we call it CDG1X. So quite unfortunate that uh, that just means we do not know what type it is. So that X means we don't know. Uh, So you know
0: they have CDG,
4: but you don't know what type it is. Exactly, at that time, that is uh, quite often almost like besides the common type, like uh, PMM2 and uh, MPI CDG that we can do enzyme, the rest are all 1X.
0: Is that, so, Do you still do that with, with the CDGs that you don't know their subtype, that you call them 1X? Not anymore, because okay. now, now we, our you test is out.
4: much better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the drive at that time, because uh, um, it is... Uh, so unsatisfying that uh, Mm -hmm. to give someone a diagnosis as x just means we don't know
2: right
1: one of the one of the the things that louis's mom told us is that that at the beginning of the diagnostic journey for louis that a study with the with the name transferring uh was made that pointed out that louis probably had a CDG. So I think that gives us a a good context to uh, talk about, well, what are biomarkers and what is CDG screening and how that has evolved. But before that, could you tell us what has become a, a very specialized area that is CDG screening? What have been the most significant advances that you have been able to participate in regarding CDG screening?
4: So after I become a lab director and uh, able to invest resources to develop new tests for a uh, CDG, we were funded by NIH SET program. So that's the first uh, launch of uh, biomarker plus next generation uh, sequencing for CVG. So that is a very first um, uh, event. I think that's the one of the most important thing uh, in my career. So that's the first time we can connect the biomarker to molecular diagnosis. That and, is and, also.
1: And sorry, just before continuing, could you tell our audience what Which should we understand about biomarkers? What are biomarkers?
4: For um, N-linked CDG, such as ALG1, also known as CDG1K, um, you can do n glycan So basically, it's uh, uh, using an enzyme to release the glycan sugar of the glycoprotein. Then analyze it with uh, uh, mass spec with very high sensitivity and the resolution. So by doing that, we can identify signatures or also known as biomarkers that is very specific for uh, a a subtype of CDG, such as ALG1. So in that way, we can can diagnose the type of CDG instead of uh, uh, just a group of CDG.
1: So, so at the beginning, the very beginning, probably of CDG screening, so this isoelectric focusing uh, of transferring was mostly used. Uh, this more uh, modern tools were not were still not widely available, like mass spectrometry. So what is the big difference between using isoelectric focusing of transferring? and now doing mass mass spectrometry. What is the information that we now have that at the beginning it was difficult to understand?
4: Using the isoelectric focusing, and it's a screening test. So mostly we get information of whether uh, the glycan occupancy. So that means uh, on a glycoprotein, whether the glycan is there or not. So that's mostly the information that we got. But we do not know what kind of glycan is on the glycoprotein because we just don't have the uh, resolution. So we cannot find the uh, fine signature for the glycan. Once we start to use the mass spec because uh, the resolution, the accuracy of the mass is so uh, so high, so we can solve the structure of glycan on the glycoprotein. So it is the structure of the glycan that can tell us a particular step in the glycan synthesis pathway that is blocked. So you can imagine that uh, glycans, like uh, uh, making a glycans, like uh, a factory, a processing um, a product in a factory. So when the process is blocked in the middle, then you can see the product is half made. That's what we are looking for. So that will tell us uh, which particular step is blocked. So in that way, we can make a, a diagnosis that is very precise. So that's the difference. So one is a screening, another is a position
1: medicine. So uh, one of the things that you told us is that now with mass spec we can identify signatures. And uh, I know that there are now uh, advances where specific signatures can point us out to specific types of CDGs. So could you tell us a little bit about this?
4: Uh, for example, like uh, ALG1, right? Uh, we saw a signature uh, glycan that we have never seen before because on this glycan, there's no mannose. So when I saw it, my prediction is uh, um, must be the very first step of mannosylation is block because that's the best explanation for the signature that we see. But uh, just uh, for for me to say, Uh, I told you so, it's not enough, right? We have to have that supported by uh, molecular genetics evidence and uh, to show that indeed uh, the patient carried two mutations in ALG1. So that is uh, how uh, we use this uh, signature to make diagnosis. The signature basically is tell us uh, where the process is blocked then that has to be um, confirmed with, at least at the beginning, at the discovery stage has to be confirmed by molecular genetics analysis.
1: And so what types of CDGs could we say have a specific biomarkers now that can be identified in the lab?
4: Many. I think in our lab, uh, we have a database that... Uh, uh, collect all the biomarker signatures for different type of for, uh, CDGs. Um, in our database, it's uh, more than 60 different and linked glycosylation um, CDG types that has unique um, signatures. And we actually also use the uh, machine learning because we have enough uh, data in our database and uh, actually we we try to see whether machine can uh, pick up uh, exactly same biomarker as the directors, actually that is also um, interestingly very very close. So yeah, uh, there are a lot of CDGs that can be uh, picked up by uh, biomarker. So my prediction is uh, we're close to 90, I think. We we keep collecting. Uh, when I say 60, actually, we don't have ALG2. And uh, recently, we just uh, uh, tested Ivan's um, patient, and I think we probably got it. So that will be adding one more CDG. Okay. So, that- so we have 60, but we should have more as we test more.
1: So that's great. And so would it be right to understand that these th- this biochemical approach where you can find the signatures is particularly important in patients where the genetic uh, mutations are not known if they're pathogenic or not and so adding this information can confirm a diagnosis is is would that be the correct idea of what is the importance of biomarkers in the diagnostic setting?
4: Yes, you're absolutely right because the frequency for CDG patient to have a VOUS basically is a, a molecular genetics change that cannot be uh, interpreted easily is very very high. So almost every patient carry at least one VOUS. So in now we call it, once the diagnosis is made, we call it private mutation, uh, just a mutation that has never been seen before. But before we can functionally uh, prove it, it is called a variant of unknown significance. Basically, it's just like we call 1x, means we don't know. So I think that is a uh, family need to be careful. Um, we do have a uh, patient that carry two different, one from mom, one from dad, uh, VOUs, and the sound almost like by odds has to be real, but it's not. It's both VOUs are benign, and the patient do not have um, the diagnosis as we determined by uh, biomarker. That is extremely important because you often only have one Uh, correct diagnosis so if you give patient a wrong diagnosis that you stopped physicians from keep looking for the right diagnosis for the patient
1: yes that's very important and so also as part of your career you participate in a consortium that is specialized in cdgs and this consortium has um what I considered an important task or objective that is the development of biomarkers, right? So, uh, could you speak a little bit about this and and what is your participation and why are biomarkers an objective of this consortium of researchers?
4: So, our consortium called uh, Frontier uh, for uh, CDG Consortium. It was founded in uh, 2019, and uh, the consortium has a biomarker core and also has a um, natural history and a clinical trial. So, the importance of biomarker in this consortium is uh, um, the biomarker is not only used for diagnosis. So, we use it for diagnosis, that's a qualitative uh, biomarker, but we also use it, quant- uh, we also develop like a quantitative biomarker. And we use this to um, monitor the disease progression, and also use this to monitor the to guide the clinical trial. So that's why the biomarker is so important because it connected all three core together.
1: And so, particularly, so particularly in in clinical trials where. Uh, a, a certain drug is being tested, so these biomarkers can tell us if glycosylation is being improved, and and that's a, a hint that it's probably a good a good drug that is doing its work, right?
4: Yeah, I think a uh, uh, a quantitative biomarker will help us to decide, for example, uh, what what is the ideal dosage to use in order to see effecting. Uh, effectiveness of for a particular drug, so that is very important. Actually, clinical trial has uh, overall has a very high failure rate. So a lot of uh, families don't aware. Even for a rare disease, the failure rate for clinical trial is very very high. So basically, saying that during the period, which is often very limited, it's like six months of trial, you have to show the effectiveness. And uh, that is very difficult without biomarker, and... because a lot of improvement doesn't cannot be measured quantitatively, and biomarker is uh, something that more objectively um, measured and often can measured quantitatively
1: and that's why it's precision medicine also right because it's going to do give us yeah. very quantitative specific data that we can evaluate the effectiveness of a certain treatment and j- just to 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 go back probably to the the most uh, i think basic step of of cdgs as rare diseases we have always a challenge to 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 make diagnosis and and the first thing is that the the first contact physicians probably know what are the tests that they have to do and so in that regard what is your experience in the United States uh, with respect to awareness in physicians so is it still a challenge for 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 the CDG research community? Uh, to make physicians uh, completely aware of the biomarkers that are available, are physicians using these biomarkers, or is this still a challenge that we still have to to push for this awareness, so so physicians know th- what tests they should uh, require for certain patients?
4: Yeah, actually, it's a it's a challenge. It's actually uh, it's a challenge uh, not only for um, for families, but also for um for educators, like uh, when we're teaching fellows, um, because the how widely the whole axon is used, and uh, a lot of fellows actually uh not pay attention to to the biomarker because every time they, they run into a patient and just order oh, whole axon, <laughs> then then the job is done. Which actually is not, not even close. So it is very important to, uh, in this era, this genomics era, um, to pu- um, to push for the awareness of for functional biomarker, especially in the uh, CDG community, because you may know that uh, every CDG patient are different. So every ALG patient are different. And it's not like uh, some other disease that you can do a clinical diagnosis. And often uh, that does not happen. Even between the siblings can be very different. And often the physicians have to wait years um, before they are convinced whether the patient has or uh, do not have CDG. Because those uh, symptoms may not come all together. So you have to just keep waiting and hope that some symptoms will will show up, will help you make the diagnosis clinically. So that's why it is so important to use the biomarker so you can get diagnosis much much early. So if this is not CDG, then you can get a negative answer much early too. But a lot of physicians and uh, even the trainees, uh, even a geneticist is not aware of uh, biomarker and they're not aware of the importance of the biomarker, which is understandable because a lot harder. Each disease has different biomarker, but uh, you only need to remember how axon, uh, one test if you only uh, only do the uh, mutation analysis. So that is uh, that is a challenge.
1: So I think for families probably for many families that are not only having their journey on on diagnosis of cdgs but other rare diseases so i think an important message is that uh, it's important to ask for ask for the genetic information but also ask your physicians what are the biomarkers that are confirming this genetic diagnosis right but because yeah. it's true that at, in certain cases Probably the data from exome sequencing will be enough, but in many other cases, probably most of the cases, biochemical data is needed to confirm. And so uh, I think a a message for families is get to know the genetic information of your child, but also ask what is the biochemical information supporting it? I don't know, Karen, what do you think about this?
0: Well, I have a question. So when a family... um you know, does genetic testing. They have a child, they they're trying to search for a diagnosis and they they send in the labs for genetic testing. Are biomarkers automatically tested or is this something that you have to request? Like is this something that would just be automatically tested? Cause I know when when my son was diagnosed, you know, we just drew labs and sent them in, but I never knew anything about biomarkers. So is this just something in labs that they they automatically test for now, or is this something that only specialty labs have to test for, or or you have to request this analysis? It's only
4: by specialty lab, and Uh uh, very, very few labs test that. So you have to, often for the families, you want to find an expert, an international uh, well-known expert. They usually know where to send the labs. And I hope that uh, um, with educational podcasts like this, that uh, yeah. uh, this will uh, even among the family group there will be more awareness of for, um, labs that does those biomarkers. Yeah, it's not automatically done, unfortunately. Yeah, um, this is
0: extremely important for families. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of families that don't know about this. So the best bet is to find. Uh, a a specialist in yeah. this disease and then request request the biomarker analysis. Um yeah a lot of countries don't have it at all yeah. so I
4: yeah I visit a few uh other countries and I, I realized that they don't have a biomarker screening for uh, CDG at all. I think you are you're lucky you have Ivan and who run the i f uh, IEF yeah. for Mexico uh, families, but uh, for many countries, they don't even have IEF. I think for that reason, actually, we actually encourage people to use the the uh, plasma card. So that would be a, a way that uh, a lot cheaper way to send sample uh, across the border to a,
0: a center that is very specialized. In would CET you say the test. United States probably has the most specialty labs that that does this or is there another country that um has more of these labs available? Do you know that? Um so yeah uh
4: United States, I think they are currently for NGLYCAN, there are two labs, uh does NGlyCAN, one is uh, mine and another is Maya.
1: Okay. Um,
4: and uh, my lab is the only lab to do it quantitatively, so even even that is different. Um, what what does that mean? Uh, that quanti- your lab does it quantitatively. There are certain ta- uh, certain disease that when the when the quantification is important, such as like a a, a female X-linked disorder. Okay. so so those are very difficult to pick up because a female has one copy that is working right. Right? right so it's not uh, uh you cannot tell qualitatively so it's not something that differ by 10 times difference a hundred times difference you just with one glance you know it um but they are there are cases that you actually need to calculate exactly how much it is and compare to the normal population. So that's called a quantitative marker. That's the the difference. So certain disease that uh, requires quantitative marker to to pick up the diagnosis and also for the uh, clinical trial that you definitely need a quantitative marker. And for n like, I actually don't aware any of the European lab are doing it. I know that uh, Nijmegen has a very good uh, lab that does CDG screening, but they don't. I don't think they do N-glycan. Like they do uh, proteomics, mm-hmm. so that is
0: a bit different.
4: Um, so yes. So if a
0: family th- were to send their their child's labs into a lab that doesn't specialize in looking for biomarkers. And would this be something where they would receive their diagnosis and it would be CDG1X? Like they don't know what type it is and that's when you have to kind of dig deeper and do this biomarker analysis? Yeah, usually the diagnosis, suppose has to go through
4: an experienced physician the lab not supposed to make diagnosis. The The lab's supposed to say you have this variant. Most of the mm-hmm. time they will tell you, I don't know what that variant means. So that's called V-O-U-S or VUS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they will always use uh, prevents, but uh, just like 1X, what 1X means, doesn't mean you have a diagnosis, just means I don't know right, what do right. you have.
0: And we we kind of know. <laughs> No, we don't know. The truth is, we
4: don't know. The, the honest uh, thing is like, we don't know. Yeah. Um, that's one thing that uh, a that, uh, family has to understand. So, when you receive boost and the experience, the clinician can judge from the clinical phenotype and is saying, if it fits perfectly, I do believe this is your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's usually the case uh, that most of family receive, mm-hmm. but you still have to be aware that a lot of disease has very similar clinical findings, and that uh, often even with uh, um, experience, the clinician what they give it to you just uh, uh, an odds, right? Just by chance, this is uh, so unlikely. Uh, this is not the diagnosis. Therefore, right. this is most likely the diagnosis, but it's not um, the final diagnosis. I think the easiest way is reach out
0: to the consortium. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, very interesting. Thank you.
1: So it's true that at the at the at the end of the podcast, we'll give you the, the website from the consortium where you can understand more about this information and the use of biomarkers. I think that at least two scenarios for that we should, well, talk with, with family so they understand is that one is that you send labs, uh, you see a geneticist, and there's an exome sequencing probably will be done, and that you will receive genetic information. So at that point, probably the genetic information that you receive is enough to make a diagnosis. But in many cases, uh, as when you have the, VU, the, the, VOS, the, the, the VUS, the the this variants, this information in the, the DNA that is not normal but we, that we don't know if it's good or bad, uh, in those cases, then biomarkers are something that can allow to advance diagnosis. So if you have a, a geneticist or a physician that is telling you that the genetic information is not enough to make a diagnosis so put the question on the table if there are biomarkers uh, that could allow to confirm this diagnosis because as uh, one thing that is true is that uh, there is sometimes the, the diagnostic algorithms that the process don't work very well. And so sometimes you can get stuck up with the genetic information and no additional tests are done. And I think we, one thing that we should avoid is making bad diagnosis, because once you have that label uh, of a certain disease, then uh, just wipe it eliminating, eliminating it is, is, is very difficult. So, and, and you can affect uh, a a lot the patient. So uh, that's very, very interesting. And so I just would like to, to, to ask you, uh, Meow, what are the technological advances that you are looking for? So you already have told us that there are biomarkers that have been found for many types of CDGs and, of course, other rare disorders. What are you aiming at? How how is the field advancing in regard to biomarkers?
4: So one thing we are aiming is uh, make the uh, technology more widely available, uh, more easy to access. So one way to do that is push for newborn screening CDG. So, in order to achieve that, actually, uh, we have to make uh, uh, the the test very, very uh, cheap. So, basically, the the criteria is like one dollar uh, per sample per for uh, per baby. I, so that's one thing that, uh, that we're trying to work towards, and the technology is uh, is getting there, and we're trying to. Uh, Figure out the the workflow so it will fit into um, newborn screening lab. So we basically is trying to uh, disseminate our technology and make it uh, uh, implemented into routine uh, newborn screening lab. So that's one thing that I hope that uh, we will uh, make that happen. I think that would be uh, one of the most high impact thing to do. Is basically uh, diagnose every CDG baby uh, at the birth, so that gives uh, a window of opportunity uh, for the family to find uh, the therapy. And uh, um,
1: so there I is there that... is there just if so there is a justification to screen all newborns for CDGs.
4: Yes, because uh, many CDGs. Um, can be treated, so, such as uh, CDG1B, I think. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we just diagnosed a child with uh, CDG1B and uh, without treatment, he probably would be on the liver transplant list. And it was very, very uh, bad liver disease. If we can find those patients at birth, then we can start a treatment right there. And uh, he will not even develop a uh, liver disease, such as severe liver disease. So that's, uh, that's one example. Another is like a PGM-1. That's a disease that can be um, treated with glattles. And unfortunately, without treatment, uh, the first symptom for a lot of uh, kids are the stroke paralysis. So so we had a couple of cases that is a a shame when uh, we cannot diagnose early and cannot prevent this from happening. Um, I can keep keep talking about treatable. Uh, We have a long list of treatable CDGs that can save life. And also I think early diagnosis also um, improve the clinical outcome. And uh, we have a lot of cases that uh, it's too late by the time we diagnose the child. so so that is uh, always make me hope that we can diagnose at a, at a birth. And uh, it's challenging because uh, uh, most CDG patients are not symptomatic at birth. they the symptoms don't develop until later, uh, like a... Uh, Three months uh, is often um, one of the common windows for, for baby show up with failure to thrive. So we had a case that unfortunately was a uh, baby was born at the peak of the pandemics. So the family was afraid of go to uh, go to hospital because of the uh, COVID. So the baby didn't show up in the hospital until um, baby was seven months old. At that time, it was, uh, was too late. So, yeah, even for the CDGs that uh, do not have a cure, um, effective treatment immediately, uh, early diagnosis still matters because yeah. there's a lot of manage- uh, disease management that we can do.
0: You mentioned that it the criteria is $1 per baby. What is, how much does it cost now? Uh way too expensive.
4: <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Currently it's costing us like a hundred dollar. Um okay we, we right. want to we want to bring this down, but uh, yeah. also yeah, a lot of time those are uh volume driven. I right? we are yeah. doing five yeah. a week. It's uh, different from doing five hundred a week. Um one thing that we know is we can diagnose uh CDGs at the 24 hours of life and uh, yeah. actually uh probably is the most sensitive window
0: really That's
4: why it. is that because at that uh, at the 24 hours of uh, life your your liver is uh, um, with high demanding and they're really under the pressure to produce glycoprotein so that is like the most stressful time of the baby so they don't have to do anything before that yeah and all of a sudden they they need to do their own metabolism and they need to um, fight their own infections and all those the uh, liver to make glycoprotein so that is always the best window on uh, to make a diagnosis so we actually know from historical data is the younger baby, um, the higher the yield of diagnosis we can achieve.
1: So that's very very interesting. And so, what would be your 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 advice uh, to young scientists and researchers interested in pursuing? not only a career in genetic disorders, but uh, particularly in the research of biomarkers? Is it a field worth doing it?
4: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Rare disease, I think, uh, by uh, itself, by one disease is rare, but combined, right? Now we know we have over 6,000 genetic conditions and you combine all the 6,000 diseases together, you really come for like half of the population that uh, has disease. So half of the um, patients actually has a genetic condition. So that basically saying that this is a a fertile ground for research because each one of these genetic conditions now have opportunities to uh, for treatment such as gene therapy. Now, there are many, many different kinds of gene therapy. But remember, you, you can't have a therapy unless you have biomarker. You can't have a therapy unless you have natural history. So that's one thing that a uh, uh, family group need to be aware of that because it's, uh, it's very popular to to just uh, gather the money and uh, make vector, because uh, the company who make vector just uh, put a different genes in it. Right, it's very simple. But uh, once you have the gene therapy and you want to test, you want to do the clinical trial, you have to have biomarker. So that's why I think um, for young scientists, this is uh, this is a very important area to be in, and we probably is already saturating the the genetic diagnosis uh, field because it's just repeated success. But in the biomarker, there isn't easy. Um, Each disease has its own biomarker. So still has a lot of of opportunities. And I think it should be a very um, Fertile ground for young scientists to find impactful research and have a, a very gratifying career.
1: And I just w- wanted to ask you about newborn screening. So, is it just a matter of reducing costs, or do you still have to convince the health system that it is worthwhile? Uh, what I mean to say is, if tomorrow you say to the public health system, it's one dollar now. I achieved that. Is it going to be easy to implement, or it's it's that's another challenge? How how does that work?
4: Yeah, I actually gave a talk um, to multiple uh, newborn screening lab and uh, at multiple meetings. Actually, always very well received. They are uh, uh, eager. Um, to get involved uh, once that uh, this is ready. So the criteria has to be cheap and, and has to be uh, within the limitation of their current instrument and the workflow. I think the, the one of the uh, one point important point why it is CDG is so welcomed is because the treatment often are very cheap. So a lot of CDGs can be effectively treated by uh, sugar. So we call it a monosaccharide uh, therapy. So for that, that fit perfectly for what is uh, newborn screening is for.
1: Perfect. Thank you very much. I don't know, Karen, do you have uh, any other uh, questions?
0: No, I don't. I just thank you so much for all of the, the work work you've done and your advocacy on newborn screening and the awareness that you bring to all of these topics, I feel like families are really going to find all of this information really important. So just thank you so much for all of the work that you do. We, We really, really appreciate you. Thank you.
1: And also, I think it is safe to say that unfortunately, in most parts of the world, there are no tests specific tests being done for CDGs and I think that's something we should acknowledge and, and try to, to change and I think uh, well your lab is one of the labs that has efforts not only in the US but also to give access to other countries uh, to to try and help families achieve uh, a diagnosis. So thank you very much for, for your work and uh, well that families that are hearing us well have that take-home message that there are these biomarkers, these signatures, these uh, functional information that is and can be of importance not only to achieving a diagnosis in CDGs or other rare diseases, but also if there is treatment available to try and see how that treatment is working, not only treatment that has been uh, all, that is already uh, developed, but also new treatments in clinical trials. So thank you very much, and I don't know, Doctor Miao, if you would want to to leave a message, a take home message for particularly for families that are are looking for a diagnosis in in this topic.
4: Um. Thank you, Yvonne and Karen for inviting me. It's a, such, I had a great time talking with you guys. Um, I think uh, if I need to send a message to uh, to the families, is uh, uh, stay strong and uh, stay hopeful. And I think that um, we are very close to, uh, to have treatment um, and uh, yeah, I think the first of all, of course, but uh, but beware that uh, in order to have precise treatment, you have to have precise diagnosis. So achieve diagnosis first, and stay strong, and I think the uh, stay hopeful. I think it's the yeah, we're very close.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Miao, for being with us. And we'll see you soon in our next podcasts. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Val. Bye-bye. And well, I want to thank uh, thank our guests for being with us, of course, in this program and making Glycocast possible. And of course, thanks to all our listeners for being part of this journey of families navigating through rare disease. Please follow us at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Music, and visit our sponsor at cdgcare.org, where you can access more interesting information on CDGs. Thank you very much. And well, I think we both Karen and I are very happy to hear your story, to see the hope, of course, to know that there are struggles but that you have a, a good health system that i think that's great and that you're uh, navigating uh, very well through through this uh, struggle thank you very much
2: thanks